it's like business, right? If you're, if something, if you're doing the same thing over and over again, and it's not really working and you don't iterate, you're not really going to get far in business. And the same applies to a research lab. You know, you always have to have that somewhat entrepreneurial mindset. You always have to be pivoting, changing, you know, you're never going to beat your head against the wall and do the same thing a hundred times if it's working. You have to change constantly. So it's, it's, it's about planning. It's about looking at the information and the data that you have in hand, making a hypothesis, making a plan to test it. Yes, you do have to conduct the, the experiments, which can be frustrating at times. And then you just have to analyze what you got out and, and change based on that. So I think I don't think my role or my view of the PhD role changed over time, but I think my view of the whole field of research and the opportunities that were in it did change. So, Katie, apart from years of underpaid, hard academic work that lends itself to slightly better prospects of securing tenure at a post-secondary institution, what is a PhD? Oh, it's the million-dollar question. I would say generally I see PhDs, it's a way to work in research while you're still a student. There's always that kind of boundary of like, you're a student technically, but you're essentially, you know, I always considered it my full-time job. Um, and I think it's the first time you really get to take on big research projects as a, as a researcher and, and really own it. And you own the success, you own the failures, um, and you really get to live in those outcomes. You're always striving towards them. And for me, personally, it was a way to continue my love for research and, of course, to move to Canada. That's fair enough. I mean, Canada is a good place to live in and research has its own, I guess, unique aspects that certainly are very interesting. But we'll dive a little bit into that and why you're not still working in academia. But that's for <laughs> later on in the episode. Um, listeners, as usual, this is Jeff, your host of How It's Med, chatting with the PhD research director and funding catalyst of Thin Air Labs herself, Dr. Katie Green. Other than working in research of some different sorts, how are you feeling, Katie? Oh, I'm feeling good. I'm excited to chat about this today. And I like talking about, um, you know, my my start in academia and now my my now in business, in the business world. And, and the Your transition. turn to the dark side. Your turn to the dark side, basically. I did. I left. But uh, no, excited to talk about it. There's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of differences. And, you know, I, I can't say one is better than the other. I think one is better than the other for me. For it. Awesome. Okay. So your story begins like way back when in Ireland, uh, when you started with a bachelor's in biochem. Um, back then, did you know that you wanted to stick to an academic path or were there, I guess, glimmers of the traits or wants that you have now that led you to pursue the work that you do today? Yeah, absolutely. I was hardcore into research. I, I did my first research project um, as a third year undergrad in the summer. It was an unplayed position and it was like three hours from where I was living. So it was, it was a bit crazy. Went up there, kind of crashed with my brother, would work, you know, Monday to Thursday in the lab and then head back down because uh, I had a part time job in my hometown. So I just kept doing the transition all summer and I loved every second of this. Uh, despite the, the crazy schedule. And I thought, this is it for me. This is the only thing I'm ever going to do. And then I did a master's. It was still in biochem, um, but it also had this bioinnovation component to it. So we took courses on like business, marketing, patent law. And at the time, I really undervalued that experience. I, I thought, you know, this is just the tick the box. Why am I learning about business? Came up with a whole business concept and had to decide whether I myself would become an entrepreneur or whether I was going to chase the 
the PhD journey and obviously the PhD went out for me. I really wanted to run a research lab. But looking back on that experience, I really it was my first exposure to see how scientists could really thrive in business outside of the kind of just industry. Everyone talks it's like academia or industry and industry is often, you know, pharmaceutical companies. So for me, it was that that first kind of glimmer of could there be something else? But still, you know, was hardcore, wanted to get in the PhD route. What was the attitude towards working with industry like in Ireland? Because I know at, in Canada, at least there's, or in the States too, there's just a general, like, you know, don't touch that side of, uh, of science and research uh, within the academic institutions. But Ireland also is home to a whole bunch of pharmaceutical companies. So yeah. I guess, was there more friendliness towards bioinnovation in Ireland or was it not different from here at all? You know, that's, that's an interesting question. We, like in my hometown, which is, is Cork in Ireland, we, we have all the big pharma players. So like Eli Lilly, Janssen, Novartis, they're all there. So the university itself becomes a steady supply of actually biochemists and chemists. So there's a lot of programming within the university, you know, to gear you up. You know, you can do chemistry with pharmaceutical or for pharmaceutical compounds as a degree so that you're really primed. They made a dedicated master's program for biochemists to go straight into the pharma. So I think that that path was, um, it's more clear that they made a, a direct kind of link between the two. But I would still say that that attitude exists. It's almost like a rivalry, right? Like you're either an academic or you're going into industry. And it's such a strange, it's such a strange um, line to draw because one really does feed the other anyway. And that you need both for, for the innovation to happen. I, but I don't know. I, I always thought it was, something to do with the money like is it because industry is driven for profit you know they're always it's a business they're looking at the for profit angle and academics think they're more pure because of the non-profit side of it and it was really eye-opening for me because maybe I was naive but I actually didn't know that academics and like industry partners collaborated on research all the time and that it was super common so when I when I found out about that it made a ton of sense to me and it also was really eye-opening yeah, that's fair enough. I think there's there's certainly some historical context that has, I mean, earned pharma some of that, I guess, pushback. Uh, certainly it's, you know, there there is context and we won't dive into it because there's there's a whole lot to go into. But I guess to return to the topic at hand, um, you had jumped into that master's. There is a bioinnovation component. Like what was what was, I guess, the the biggest takeaway that you had from it because you mentioned that it was kind of like you know a checkbox for you was it something that sparked your interest in bioinnovation or was it still back then just you know oh it's it's just a part of the program part of what I got what I got to go through yeah I think for me it was very much um, the way they'd set it up and it, and it was a relatively new program back then was really to show scientists um, how they themselves could potentially become entrepreneurs how could you commercialize something that you maybe discover in the lab or you have a great idea? How can you take those skills that you've learned? How can they become transferable? Um, and how does it how does it work with other disciplines? So it was interesting for me because they didn't they didn't set up those courses to be solely scientists. We were mixed with business students. I remember there being some environmental engineers. Um, you know, it was just it was just a complete mixed bag of people. And I think 
that was really eye-opening for me. It was like, how can I work on a project with someone from a completely different discipline that doesn't have any idea what I do or the relevance of what I do in the lab? Um, and how can we kind of work together on a project to come up with something really impactful and meaningful? So I think that really um, opened my eyes to the importance of, you know, what we at Thin Air call unlike minds. You know, you need to have people from different walks of life, from different backgrounds and experiences in order to make something as impactful as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. I guess speaking about unlike minds, what were the first challenges that you had in learning about or completing exercises in the area? Because although you're able to work with unlike minds to explore different aspects of thinking or different tangents from a certain piece of information that you may have, the difficulty is bridging the, the communication barrier that, for example, environmental engineers may have versus biochemists, et cetera? Yeah, I think for me, um, one of the first things I remember was intimidation. I was really intimidated by um, the language, right? Like it's, you're used to, you know, you learn about amino acids and proteins or all chemical bonds. And I could I'd be happy to live in that space and have those conversations. And then someone starts talking to me about business plans and market research. Yeah, and I'm like, I know nothing about these things. And I instantly thought to myself, this must be really hard. Like, it must be really totally foreign concept. How will I ever understand this? And just getting past that barrier and, and breaking it down into the basic concepts of what are we really trying to achieve here? What do they, what do they know? And then discovering that, you know, honestly, I look at business as one big experiment. And I think if you take that mentality towards it for scientists, it's a lot more digestible. Everything you do in business is, you know, you have assumptions about a market and about a product and how it's going to sell. And your main goal is validating your assumptions, running those experiments, testing, iterating, you know, coming up with hypotheses. So I think for me, it's uh, once I once I realized what the alignments were, it's a lot easier to understand what the differences are, how to how to approach the differences, and then how to work with people in with different differing opinions and different backgrounds. I think that's part of any industry or any place that you're in. I, I certainly have had to work with challenging people in academia too. So I don't, I don't think that changes. That's fair enough. Those experiences are pretty common to whatever industry you work in, but I actually haven't heard um, anyone really uh, compare experiments to the development of a business plan, but you're absolutely right. I've been having a chat earlier today with someone who compared, uh, you know, lean uh, business execution to a series of experiments. So you're mm -hmm. absolutely right there. Um, talking more about why you may have or may or may not have made the right choice. You went from Ireland yeah. to Alberta. And personally, personally, I think that British Columbia should have been the choice. But <laughs> why, why did you think, uh, why did you choose to go to Alberta? And what were the most striking differences between Ireland and your new home? Yeah, for sure. Um, I knew, you know, I knew I wanted to do a PhD after the master's. Yeah. I, all my experience to date had been within Ireland and different universities there, but it was, you know, I wanted to to spread my wings and see where was next. And really I was looking at a lot of different places, but Canada and the UK were my top choices. I applied, I started interviewing and to be very, very honest, I never even heard of Calgary before. Um, but when I looked at the university, they had such an amazing energy. I, it just really drew me in. Honestly, it was, they have a, an incredible biochem research program. The whole university has this ambition and still or had, and it still does to be, you know, the top rank within the top ranked universities in Canada, they were investing in innovation. They still are, 
But what I love the most is they weren't afraid to be outside of the box, you know, and that's such an incredible um, energy to get from university, especially when you're younger and you're looking for a change. I wanted to come in somewhere. I wanted to be able to play with big, expensive toys in the lab. I wanted to do a project that was a bit out there that wasn't testing a known hypothesis. And then they flew me over for recruitment drives. I learned more about the program, the city, the researchers. And of course, they brought us to Banff and up to the mountains. So I was pretty sold then. Um, and then my my final, what really pushed me over the line was, um, I found out the movie Cool Runnings was filmed in Calgary. That was like one of my favorite movies. Wait, was it was? Yeah. yeah the How did I not know that? Yeah, it was it was filmed at the Olympic Parks. That was a big plus for me. That's okay. Yeah, okay. that definitely fine. I'll I'll accept that answer as why not British Columbia. But it's it's funny. Me? Yeah, the, like the obvious differences though for me are obviously the snow. We don't really have snow in Ireland, yeah. and there's a lot of snow, including last weekend we got 25 centimeters in Calgary. Um, but I think there's more similarities between. I know October it was a lot. Um, there's more similarities between like Calgary and Ireland than there are differences. I think the lifestyle here is lovely. It's really outdoorsy and, you know, there's the weather's better, honestly. Yeah. Um, but from a university perspective, they're quite similar. Typically in Ireland, PhDs are shorter and more intense usually because it's, you know, you're doing it in three years. But mm -hmm. in Canada, the one thing that I really valued is the ownership you're allowed to have in a project. You can go into a lab and build a project from scratch and really own that whole journey and that whole project. Yeah, that's fair enough. I think one of the one of the things that you had mentioned in your answer just now was Calgary's focus on innovation, not being afraid to think out of the box. What were the main examples that drew you into the program um, that highlighted that attitude apart from the new toys that you could work with? Yeah, for sure. I just, I liked the approach they were taking with you know, um, some of the in institutes that they have, like I did my PhD within the, the Snyder Institute, but they, which is for chronic um, diseases. And then they also had the, the Hotchisk Brain Institute and they were just leading in even just thinking about neurological conditions. And some of the, the, the research that they were doing um, and approaching some of these treatments and looking at things that were, you know, taboo in certain circumstances like they were pretty early when they were funding research into cannabinoids and cannabis use for you know various conditions including like truly MS. canadian truly canadian yeah exactly it fits right um but then even just like the innovative microscopy techniques that they were doing at the university of calgary like the 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 toys that were there were incredible and the things that they were doing with them was just it blew my mind and the research lab that i actually landed in with uh, Dr. Robin Yates, he was doing, he had this project that it was just kind of started as a, a little kind of observation. And then they proved that it wasn't, you know, an artifact, but they really had no idea what it was and he had no funding for it per se, but he had enough of kind of the resources within the lab to say, this is definitely something worth exploring. And when he presented that to me, I was like, first of all, I like this guy who's saying, you know, we can do really cool things. Um, well, we don't have techniques to study this. No problem. We'll come up with them. Um, and it's just that type of attitude and that mentality existed within, I think, every researcher that I spoke to um, when I did come over for the interview, that it, it, it's like it's hard to point to very specific examples because it's it's kind of ingrained in everyone that's within the university. Yeah, I mean, a couple interesting points there. I, I'll, 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 I'll go back to the whole innovation aspect and then I'll talk more about the attitudes that you just highlighted. But I guess in your perspective, 
what's the difference between the innovation that I guess Calgary and the researchers there were doing versus the inventions that they were making in terms of new techniques, et cetera, because those certainly aren't the same thing. And I wonder why you use innovation to describe it, uh, other than it possibly being a catchword that universities use to draw more funding and more students in. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that there is um, quite a sharp difference between, you know, innovation within a research lab versus like invention. Um, and I think that, you know, one feeds the other. I think you need to be, you need to have an innovative mindset and an innovative approach to create an invention. Um, and, and I did like that there was a lot of focus on innovation within the university. However, you know, I think they've gotten better with this over time, but I would say this is true for most academic institutions. Um, and one of my kind of frustrations, I guess, with academia is just there's so much talent and there's so much brain power within the academic institutions. And there is incredible inventions happening in there, too. And I don't know if it's just like a lack of knowledge or fear or, you know, there's perceived boundaries and real boundaries about commercializing some of the things that exist within there. Um, and, and that that happens. I've seen it. And it's there's there's a lot of challenges there. Like, I, I don't judge people for not doing it. It's just maybe if we talked about it more and there's a lot more support, um, we'd have more inventions coming out. And I actually think that the University of Calgary is doing a good job of putting supports in place. You know, they have this life science innovation hub. You know, they're, they're putting um, money into a new social innovation hub actually up there as well to, to support social innovation, not just in the life sciences, right? So it's, mm-hmm. I think that the universities are taking a step in the right direction. Um, but I, I do think that there's still a bit of a gap. Yeah, I mean, it's surprising at all that that gap exists, given the fact that you said that, you know, that researcher that you spoke with had noted a slight abnormality to the data, that there was nothing to, I guess, work up with. Um, quite so far. And the attitude of being willing to take the risk to explore that uh, abnormality, uh, that in itself is entrepreneurial in itself. So to see that there is still some pushback against an entrepreneurial mindset to go beyond research is itself kind of puzzling. Um, I, I guess from from your perspective, um, what was the role of a PhD in this whole environment in which there was still that kind of pseudo maybe entrepreneurial um, environment and how did that how did your feelings about that role change as you went through your PhD yeah absolutely and and I think actually the lab I was in was actually very entrepreneurial but we were so we were very basic science let's like be very clear it was at the very basic level so even if it were to be invented it probably needs another 10 years of solid work to get it there but in i think in phds in general in a, in a lot of labs they're actually the main contributors to overall research in the labs it depends on how big you know the lab is if you've got a ton of postdocs and other phd students in there um, but i've seen a lot of situations where the P, where phd students are the main producers of research in their lab and i think supervisors other lab members they put a lot of they invest a lot of time and resources into training phd students in the hope that after the kind of the first year or two, not only those do those students heavily contribute to the research of the lab, but they're also training the next generation of whether they're undergrad students or masters or PhDs or even postdocs. Um, and I think that's an important role that you take in that as a, as a PhD student in the lab. And I think it just depends on the nature of the lab. I think supervisors have a lot. Um, you know, they're the main provider of the kind of ethos of the lab and whether it's going to be more entrepreneurial, whether it's going to be, 
you know, testing kind of safer hypothesis, just doing what we've always done within the norm or whether you're going to push the boundaries and, and explore kind of newer territories. So I think, I don't think my view of the PhD role changed too much over time. I think I was always very clear of what it was. Um, but I think your experience is very varied depending on which lab you're in and what you want to get out of it. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's certainly something to be said about the fact that the, you said the job of a PhD is to get the main learning and actual research down. That in itself sounds like a day-to-day -day job, not so much entrepreneurial, but rather getting the work done on the ground. So how did your attitude about that role change as you went through your PhD? Because I'm certain that a lot of the day-to-day -day experimentation can, can, can grind on you uh, after a couple of years. Oh, yeah, it sure does. Um, you're always striving for that couple of percent success. But I think it's like business, right? If you're, if something, if you're doing the same thing over and over again and it's not really working and you don't iterate, you're not really going to get far in business. And the same applies to a research lab. You know, you always have to have that somewhat entrepreneurial mindset. You always have to be pivoting, changing. You know, you're never going to beat your head against the wall and do the same thing a hundred times if it's working. You have to change constantly. So it's, it's, it's about planning. It's about looking at the information and the data that you have in hand, making a hypothesis, making a plan to test it. Yes, you do have to conduct the, the experiments, which can be frustrating at times. And then you just have to analyze what you got out and, and change based on that. So I think, I don't think my role or my view of the PhD role changed over time, but I think my view of the whole field of research and the opportunities that were in it did change. Like I was, I was extremely lucky. My PhD supervisor was and continues to be um, an incredible mentor, uh, both, you know, scientifically and on a personal, uh, like development level. And he was, he was really hard on us. Don't get me wrong. Like he was, he's a tough guy to please and he's an incredible mind. And I think that's what sparked, you know, and helped me kind of cultivate my entrepreneurial side because he was always challenging the norm. Um, but he takes pride in every person that's, you know, goes through his lab, all of our successes, um, whether it's within research or, you know, now me in the business world, um, you know, he, he's, he takes pride in that completely. And he was a huge component of that. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's certainly a unique, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm generalizing too hard, but that supportive attitude toward one of your grad students going towards the business world, that may be a unique experience, but I mean, you must have faced some pushback either culturally or personally overall uh, when you decided to go uh, to work with industry. So when you were starting to make that transition, um, what were the, uh, I guess, misconceptions that you faced and perhaps what were your favorite ones that, that, that you encountered or least favorite? Yeah, yeah, there was, there was some pushback for sure. I think because I was so headstrong about wanting to be an academic researcher that everyone, you know, was really surprised actually that all of a sudden, and I don't think I gave people a lot of warning either. It was just kind of night and day. One day I was a postdoc and the next day I was like, I'm going to go work at a VC firm. Um, so my, my supervisor knew I would, I, he was in the, um, but some, some other people weren't. So people were just really surprised that I didn't want to continue down the research path. But, you know, when I explained my reasons for wanting to leave, Everybody kind of understood. I would say that the big thing was nobody knew what a VC firm was. So everyone was like, a what? How? How are you going there? Like, how does that, how does that transition work? 
you know, how do you have the experience that's relevant there? And I, I think it's a fair question because I also didn't think that it would work. Um, and I wasn't sure when I applied for the job either. And now I'm now I've built a team with three PhDs and a master's level scientist and I'm, you know, trying to hire another one. So it's like there's obviously a formula that's working here where the skills that you're learning in research science are actually working in the the work that we do in the SVC firm. Mm -hmm. So to rephrase that, um, there was pushback in terms of people not understanding what the overlap was in skills between someone who works in VC versus someone who works in research, correct? Yeah, I got a lot of questions like, why are you going there? Like, why are you leaving your, you know, 11 or 12 years as a researcher to go and do this? And how does that translate? Um, were a lot mm -hmm. of the questions that I got and, and people understood when I explained, but it definitely needed an explanation. So what did tip you over the edge? Because I mean, you know, you certainly had a lean towards the, you know, out of the box thinking that Calgary did. Um, you had that initial experience with your masters. What really tipped you over the edge to join the venture capital world instead of staying in academia? Yeah, I think um, towards the end of my PhD and like into my postdoc, I wanted a change. I wanted out, out of research. Um, it wasn't because I didn't love research. I did. I still do. It was more the trajectory that exists within academia. So I knew that if I were to be competitive as a prof or to try and get a, a professorship at the university, then I would likely have to go and postdoc for at least five years plus. Um, as you know, the salary is not great. How many years of education is that? That's like... Four years of undergrad plus another, what, five years of PhD plus another five years. Yep. Of, that's 14 years. Yeah, exactly. Plus I did a master's as well. So it's just, you know, I didn't want to be in university. So I'm 40. Um, you don't? And oh, not really. But also without the, the chance of, you know, what's the percentage success rate? They're saying now that it's 1% of PhDs that ends up as principal investigators. And I, I understand that in that is, you know, people who don't ever want to be a, a PI, but it's fair. You're still you're still taking a huge gamble on something that's lower success. And then if you're, you know, the other roles that exist within academia, I just wasn't super sure that they were for me. And I wasn't I wasn't I didn't feel like that there was a lot of opportunity under the academic umbrella for me anymore. So that that mm -hmm. was really the big push. And then I just started exploring like what am I really good at? What, what are my skill sets? Where could I apply these somewhere else? And I connected with a bunch of people in my network, heard about the Nair Labs and what they were doing. And obviously it was a venture capital firm. I had no idea what that was, um, except for Dragon's Den and Shark Tank and learned that it's quite different from that. Um, but I took a course um, while I was writing my thesis, actually, uh, just like an audited an online course on, uh, it was called Venture Deals. And I learned so much and it was amazing. And then as I started transitioning to postdoc, I kind of started doing some contract work on the side and that turned into a full-time position. That's awesome. So there was a push and a pull, push from, I guess, uncertainty about your future and pull being from like the, the work that VC does and probably to some part, your impression of Dragon's Den. Yes, exactly. I've, I thought that's exactly what I was going to be doing. I was going to be sitting in the chair every day, you know, founders are going to be coming in. I'm kidding, but I, it was, uh, there was definitely a pull. I had some connections that had just gotten into the VC world 
um, that had told me about it and, and how it, you know, there's overlaps in how my skill set could work in here. Um, and I was interested in exploring that more. If you could be one of the dragons, who would you be? Oh, that's a tough question. I think I'd go with like Mark. Well, I'm going Shark Tank, but I'd go with Mark Cuban just because he's super wealthy. <laughs> Fair enough. And also that, that, that new like Bilo drugs, um, I guess, company that he started to reduce pharmaceutical costs in the States certainly is really interesting. And I'm definitely keeping my eye on that. Thank you for listening to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, please download and rate our episodes on whatever platform you listen on. Also, if you have any feedback on what you just heard, we'd love to hear it wherever you listen to or on our website, howitsmed.com. That way we can create better content that suits you. Till next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>